the National Archives podcast series, The Subversion of Chedi Jagan, Internal and External Elements in the Making of the Cold War in British Guyana, 1953 to 1964. Presented by Clem Seacheron. Well, thank you for coming. I was a bit worried we wouldn't have a quorum. And I'm glad that, um, uh, you know, a few of my friends came as well, come here. So I think um, we haven't done too badly. Now, I don't know how many people know how important Chedi Jagan was in the context of the Cold War. Because when we think of the Caribbean or the Caribbean area and the Cold War, uh, we, have, we almost have a kind of an obsession with the Cuban, the Cuban factor, Fidel Castro, as uh, Steve would tell you. But I would say that after Castro, certainly from about 1960-61, the most important person after Castro, as far as the Americans were concerned, not important, the most dangerous person, as far as the Americans were concerned, was this man, Chedi Jagan. But I think before we get into Chedi Jagan, before I talk about his role here in the Cold War and why he became embroiled in the Cold War, um, and also the foundations of his ideas that made him the kind of person that the Americans construed him to be, I think we need to look a bit at the uh, geography of the place. And you see here very clearly that although Guyana or British Guyana, uh, which is on the mainland of South America, on the northeastern shoulder between Venezuela and Brazil, uh, it was the only British um, colony on the mainland of South America. British Guyana, or Guyana as it's known today, insignificant, hardly populated. Um, even today, the population is probably less than what it was in 1970, because there are more people from Guyana overseas than you've got in Guyana today. The trouble with it was that it had a person there who was probably the most important political figure in the history of the place, who was a Marxist, or as the American saw it, as a communist. Equally important was the geopolitics of the place. That as far as the Americans were concerned, and in a very simplistic way, they said, well, look, this little place here is between two of the most important countries in South America, Venezuela and Brazil. And therefore... With the, especially with the rise of Castro after 1959, as far as they were concerned, this red menace, or the communist virus, was easily transmittable because the Russians, or the Soviets, through Fidel Castro, was now infecting Chedi Jagan in British Guyana 
And this virus or the domino impact was going to have repercussions for the whole of South America. It's as simple and simplistic as that. And if we start from that premise, we can begin to understand why President Kennedy would spend a considerable amount of his time in the Oval Office wondering about this little obscure colony of less than a million people. So let's start from that premise. Now, <clears throat> the other thing to note here is that as early as the 1950s, and I think this is what the MI5 files that we have here at the National Archives, which have been released within the last couple of years, what they disclose or what they reveal was that even before serious American preoccupation with Chetty Jagan, that the British, through the MI5 involvement, had been following him very closely, following his wife very closely, and some of it is quite titillating, because it's not only about ideology and politics, but it's also about sex. I shan't talk about sex, because I don't know a lot about sex. Um, so I'll stick to the politics today, maybe an, another day. Another day we'll get into that. But the point to note here was that this man, Chetty Jagan in British Guyana, um, who was born on a sugar plantation on the 22nd of March, 1918, unlike most of the leaders in the British West Indies or the Anglophone Caribbean, was not educated. He was not educated in the UK. He was not educated in Britain. He was educated in America. So I think that in a lot of ways, he didn't understand the subtleties of the British. I don't think he understood, apart from what he garnered from his colonial education, um, how very sophisticated, subtle, and very deceptive a lot of the uh, British rulers, leaders that he was dealing with could be. The other thing to note here was that he, unlike other leaders in the English-speaking Caribbean, he was not of African or part African descent, because most of the leaders after the war in the British West Indies, the anti-colonial leaders, um, were invariably African or people of mixed ancestry, what we used to call colored or brown people in the West Indies. Uh, he was of Indian ancestry, because one of the things that character is characteristic of the Southern Caribbean, and for most of you this is old hat, is that you have a significant Indian population, virtually a majority now in Guyana, in Suriname next door, what used to be Dutch Guyana, as well as in Trinidad. In fact, the Prime Minister of Trinidad and Tobago is an in, a woman of Indian ancestry. And the, Prime Minister, the President of Guyana is a, is a man of Indian ancestry. So there has been that factor, and this is important to bear in mind, because the ethnic factor would become very important. I think 
one of the problems with British Guyana and this question of anti-colonialism and ideology was that everywhere else in the English-speaking Caribbean, anti-colonialism uh, or the pursuit of independence was greatly influenced by the left of the Labour Party, or what we call Fabian Socialism. The TUC, um, some of the left, left politicians in the, in the Labour Party. And that was totally acceptable to the British colonial rulers. This place here was very different. One of its problems was that you had a very delicate balance numerically between the two major ethnic groups, people of African ancestry and people of Indian ancestry. Now, you had other minorities which would become very important because of this delicate balance numerically between Africans and Indians. You had a, um, a small but very important Amerindian or indigenous population you had a small Portuguese, Madeiran Portuguese population, primarily Catholics. And you had an important mixed or colored group um, who didn't see themselves as Africans as such and therefore had the potential to play a very important role in the politics of this little colony. Now, that was the context in which... Um, Cherry Jagan emerged as a political leader, and um, he was, I would say, from the beginning of his political involvement, um, impressed with the Marxist conception of history and the Marxist conception of development. He was anti-capitalist. He was anti-British, um, and his Marxism was not an independent variant of Marxism, say the Marxism of C.L.R. James. We're going to have a discussion about this later on. This was a Marxism that was kind of received uncritically. Uh, it would have been greatly influenced by the mainstream pro-Moscow Marxism of the Communist Party of Great Britain and the Communist Party of the United States. Um, it was not a Marxism that was really adapted or sought to adapt to a Guyanese or a Caribbean or a Latin American uh, socio-political reality. So it was very much learnt, or received rather, not learnt, received is the word. It was very much received. Now, the other person that we will deal with here shortly is um, the African leader, a man named Forbes Burnham, LFS Burnham, a very different uh, character altogether. Um, Chedi Jagan, around 1936-37, when he was a student at Howard University, which is a predominantly uh, black or African-American university, so I think that his orientation, his political orientation, started within the context of basic or embryonic 
civil rights struggles on black American campuses and so on. So he was, um, although not a Marxist, his, he would have been brought up in the context of the kinds of discrimination that African Americans faced in the 1930s. He would also be brought up in a context where, because of the Great Depression, left ideas, not necessarily Marxist, but leftist, anti-capitalist ideas had been engendered by the uh, economic depression in the 1930s. So generally, that is the context. I've got to telescope a lot of this because I can talk about this for about a month. Now, <laughs> the other person, and you can't discuss the politics of this little colony if you don't speak about this woman, Janet uh, her name originally was Janet Rosenberg. She was of uh, East European Jewish background from Chicago. And Chetty Jagan, after he left Howard University, did study dentistry. That's another thing. If you studied, he didn't study law or politics. He studied dentistry um, at Northwestern University uh, in Evanston, Illinois, outside of Chicago. And that's where he met, met Janet Rosenberg, as she then was, said, love at first sight. That's what he says. For him, one of the most beautiful women he had ever seen, and so on. Um, she, however, wasn't just a, a, a beautiful young American. She was, from a very early age, a, a Marxist. She belonged to the Young Communist League, so although she wouldn't wear her Marxism on her sleeves the way Chetty Jagan would, she, nevertheless, she came from that background. And I think it is arguable that she was certainly a seminal influence in his conception of Marxism. But I should point out that um, the foundation of Jagan's politics, because he came from a plantation, a sugar plantation, I think you could begin to understand why a Marxist approach would probably have had a greater impact than, say, Forbes Burnham, the African leader, who came from Georgetown, came from an urban environment, um, would have had virtually no exposure so the pretty abysmal conditions that still existed on these sugar plantations throughout the 1930s into the 1940s. I should point out also that most of these sugar plantations were owned by one company, the Booker Company. So it was a monopoly. And uh, the conditions were quite abysmal, quite abysmal. Uh, and it's a very difficult environment. You know, this is one of the places that said. They call it El Dorado, but it's, I guess they needed El Dorado for anybody to settle here. Malaria was chronic. It's below sea level. Uh, to cultivate any land here, you've got to, because it's below sea level, waterlogged, you've got to dig a, a million drains and canals and ditches and cokers. Only the Dutch, who colonized this place using slave labor, would ever have bothered with it. Without the Dutch... I think it would just have been a part of Amazonas. The Brazilians would just have held on to it. It was only the Dutch using enslaved African labor who tried to make something of this place. So El Dorado is really a miss. It needed El Dorado 
for anybody to make any kind of effort to do anything with it. And that is why um, you didn't have a kind of, uh, as in Trinidad, small producers who produce sugarcane. You see, you didn't have that there at all. Um, only the big plantations could really cultivate sugar because it required so much infrastructural work, canals, drains, ditches, and so on. So in a way, as Jock Campbell, who later on became a very reformist leader booker, made a tremendous difference, I think, and could have had a partnership with Teddy Jagan. It didn't happen that way. But he told me, he said, Booker became a state within a state by default because no small company could really have made a success of plantation agriculture there. Um, it had to be on a large scale because it required tremendous capital to drain it and irrigate it because in the dry season, that Amazonian clay becomes as hard as concrete, if you know how it is. So anyway, um, you can see the context in which a radical Marxist idea would take hold on the plantations, but not necessarily in the rest of the society. And it's one of those places where by the 1940s or 50s, when Chadi Jagan was involved politically, I would say that over 80, 85% of the field workers would have been Indians, no longer Africans, because they had left, most had left the plantations. There would have been very few Africans residing on the plantations, not many working in the sugarcane fields. Most of the Africans who worked on the plantations would have been skilled people working in the sugar factories. Okay. Now, um, initially, there was a... As early as 1953, by which time Cherry Jagan and Forbes Burnham, Forbes Burnham, the African leader, would play a very important role in the history of the colony as well. Um, they had both uh, become members of this, what was called the People's Progressive Party, which was a very broad church. It wasn't a Marxist party, although some of the people there were Marxists, but you had people who were pro-capitalist, you had people who were Fabian socialists, you had people who were, um, you know, entrepreneurial and didn't necessarily have any political orientation at all. Um, but what you see here is uh, this was the first um, cabinet after the PPP headed by Cherry Jagan and Forbes Burnham came into office in 1953. Uh, so there were people of, you know, different political backgrounds, outlooks, and so on. But within six months of this party winning the elections in 1953, the British suspended the Constitution. They said because these people were trying to create a communist state in British Guyana. Well, <coughs> I think the trouble here was that you had a political party or a political movement that was Marxist-oriented but not communist, although it had a few communists in it. But this was being superimposed on a society where you had a large African population and a large Indian population that was not united in terms of its 
political perspective or even in terms of where they wanted to go. And I think this created a big problem. Because as early as 1953, just before the first elections, UC Kwayana Sidney King, who became a minister in that first government, told me, he's still alive, he's 88 now, he said, I advised Burnham and Jagan that they should not try to win because he was worried that they would win the elections in 1953. Which they did. But he didn't want them to win because he thought that by winning, they were really forcing the issue that they would have to have uh, address the questions or the traumas of leading, of ruling, when they felt that not only the country was not united, that you still had major, major ethnic divides there, but even within the party, it was still a loose coalition. Okay? Now, here you had the British government, and I think that although the British government was operating in the context of a general McCarthy Cold War hysteria on the part of the Americans, I don't think that the Americans, in the case of the suspension of the Constitution here, overturning the government after six months, that it was the Americans who had put pressure on them. I think the sugar interests, I think the governor, many people, local people and so on, commercial people, uh, felt that these guys were embarking on a communist program, um, when in fact the party was not really a communist party and you had a diverse political opinions, even ideologies within the political movement. Moreover, it was fundamentally still a coalition because even after, as I said, um, Kwayana said, look, we don't want to win these elections because then we'll have to take power. And we really have not consolidated this thing into a proper political party. It is still a movement in making. Okay? So they were getting all this opprobrium from the plantocracy, from the local press, from the British government and so on, when in fact it was hardly, it was certainly not a communist party, although you had a number of Marxists or communists within the political party. Now, shortly after the suspension of the Constitution in 1953, the British government set up a commission, the Robertson Commission, which went to the colony and tried to rationalize why the Constitution was suspended. And they came to the conclusion, um, hardly surprising, that there was a lot of irresponsible rhetoric of a Marxist communist nature, which was detrimental to uh, the development of the colony, and it was certainly antagonistic to efforts at attracting foreign capital, which was seen as the motor for development, and that it offered possibilities for the emergence of a communist state which would become a part of 
the Soviet Empire and thus serving as a beachhead for the penetration of South America. A very fantastic idea, but very seductive idea um, for many people who were anti-communist or anti-Russian. I should point out also that this was a Churchillian reaction. Churchill was the, the prime minister in some of the documents here in the Prem category would show you in Churchill's inimitable um, writing with this red crayon that he used to use. He said, we got to pull the teeth out of the communists in British Guyana, no question about that. So they were pulling the teeth out of the communists because they genuinely saw this as a threat, not only to the empire, to the Caribbean, but to South America as well. Now I should say that this was taking place largely independent of any kind of American prompting, although there was obviously American concern about it. I want to move on here now to what happened after the um, suspension of the Constitution, because but shortly after the suspension of the Constitution, by 1955, Burnham would break off from Chetty Jagan's PPP and create his own PPP, saying that he was the PPP means People's Progressive Party, saying that he was the genuine leader of the People's Progressive Party, that he was not a communist, because as the Robertson Commission report said, we must make a clear distinction between the insidious communism of Chetty Jagan and some of his disciples and the more rational socialism of Forbes Burnham. But they doubt whether he had the wit to make a distinction between his more rational and considered socialist perspectives and to make a distinction between that and the doctrinaire Marxism of Chetty Jagan. Well, you can't just say it's divide and rule here, but um, you know, it was very clear that what they were saying was, look, um, we think that you should move away from this, this communist party, as they saw it, and we would support you if you decide to create your own political movement. Because that would be more congruent with the general trend in the British West Indies, where people like Grantley Adams in Barbados, and people like Norman Manley, and Alexander Bustamante in Jamaica, as well as in the smaller islands, people like Ebenezer Joshua, people like Lester Bird, and so on, were pursuing what was totally an anti-colonialism. You don't even have to call it anti. It was there for the take. Um, a kind of anti-colonialism that was totally acceptable both to the Tory party here as well as the Labour party. But this was something of a totally different nature. But they thought that Burnham was recoverable for that kind of Fabian socialist perspective that was seen as totally tolerable within the context of decolonization. And we should make it clear, there was no need for any struggle by then to decolonize. The British wanted to get rid of these bloody places. They had enough of them. These little islands were of no use to them anymore. They wanted them to go, take it and go. The only thing is, we don't want you to go communist. That was the only proviso. Now, 
Um, Jagan, with, because you had a larger Indian electorate and you had a system of force-past-the-post as we have in the UK, um, within uh, a matter of, uh, what, 53, within a matter of four years when elections were held again, was able to win those elections. And between 1957, Barnum was in disarray, he was still using the name PPP, the African people were not mobilized, the Indian people were mobilized because uh, the whole plantation culture and so on. They had a strong anti-colonial perspective because of the influence of Gandhi and Nehru and India and so. The African people were not really, as Kwayana told me, he says, they were not really, uh, they had nothing against Boca and the plantation because there were not many of them working there. He said they were not even really anti-colonial in that sense, the way Jamaicans were, for instance, or even Barbadians, because they were afraid that once the British left, what you'll have is an Indian domination fired up by the, um, the independence of India and the sense of India being an independent, a free country, and so on. So this was a fundamental problem that was never resolved. And so what Chadi Jagan was doing, by winning the elections in 1957, on the basis of largely, almost exclusively, Indian support, he felt that his Marxism would take him through. That you didn't have to address the question of African insecurity. And this was a big problem. Because the question of African insecurity was at the very base of what we were dealing with here now. Because, as Kwayana says, and he was a very forthright man in these questions, he said that unlike Chedi Jagan, we had to go to the African people and ask them to accept an Indian leader. You know, not many people have given this any thought, that they had to go as Africans in the party to the African people to ask them to accept an Indian leader. Now, Cherry Jagan never thought about this. He believed that the Marxism, which gave him a total understanding of the world, that this Marxism had a purity he was a dentist, you know. He had, that gave him a purity of theoretical conceptualization and resolution that a question like race or racism was epiphenomenal, as they would have put it in the Marxist lexicon. That this was a transitory problem which would be resolved in the context of the class struggle. So instead of adjust, addressing the fundamental question of African insecurity, he just proceeded on the basis of the built-in Indian majority under the first-past-the-post system and assumed that African people would be won over eventually. Well, it didn't happen that way. However, the British wanted to get rid of this place. It didn't have oil. It had a little bit of bauxite. It was rumored to have a little bit of gold. It always had tasters, a little bit just to titillate you. The promise of El Dorado, but at the end of it, nothing. So they really wanted to get rid of this place. And by 1960, 
you had a colonial secretary here who was a very, a very liberal person um, on the left of the Conservative Party, um, a Scotsman or Scottish descent who was a very close friend of Jock Campbell who was the head of Booker. Campbell by then was supporting Chetty Jagan. Campbell was kind of Fabian socialist, although he was the head of Booker, and he felt that Booker had to walk an extra mile with Jagan and try to initiate reforms on the plantations. And there was a tremendous amount of reforms that were initiated um, in the 1950s and 1960s. But that's an, another issue. My point here is that Ian McLeod, who was the colonial secretary, he, was, uh, he went against a lot of people in the Conservative Party, and he said, look, I don't care what you say. I don't think Chetty Jagan is a communist. I think he is a kind of London school of economics, Marxist, who was influenced by Havel Lasky. I think he's juvenile in his conceptualization of this whole thing about Marxism and communism. He said, besides, you've got nobody else in British Guyana. If I had a vote in British Guyana, I'll vote for this guy. So a constitutional conference was held here in 1960 at Lancaster House. And at that point, McLeod said, look, Burnham was asking for proportional representation because he thought on the PR he'd get a better chance of defeating Jagan, that he could bring in other minority groups and so on, and maybe just tip him over the pole, over the line. But um, McLeod said, no, 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 we're sticking to you know, Commonwealth presidencies and so on. We're not going to change the electoral system. Um, so he virtually supported Jagan to the hilt. And he didn't subscribe to the notion that the man was a communist and therefore we, we should withhold independence. He said, look, we're giving you, we're granting you internal self-government and in two years' time... After elections will be held in Guyana, he knew Jagan would win on the first past the post. You come back, and independence is virtually here for the take. And up to that point, the British had now virtually reversed their position on Jagan, saying that he's not as much as a threat as Churchill had feared. And a lot of this was because he had behaved a bit more moderately and more circumspectly. That's one. But two, at a colonial office, with a man like Ian McLeod, you really had somebody who could empathize with him, who could understand the sources of his radical politics, and was prepared to walk a mile with him, was even prepared to concede that he was still young, he has a lot to learn, and that he is not going to go over to the Soviet Union. And he took a strong position on that. Jock Campbell, also the head of Booker, which virtually owned the whole of the country, told me, he says, look, after the conference, Jagan denounced the British. He says that, they, um, you know, that they're, they're crooks, they're supposed to give us independence, and so on. And he said, I took him to the Travelers Club. I said, you must caref be careful with your language. Don't use that kind of language. You're a statesman. Or we want you to be a statesman, okay? So he said, um, he said well, what are you going to do? He said, I'm going to Cuba. He said, don't do that. You're going to cut your balls off if you do that. I said, those were the words. He said, yes, I told him. He said, because I got on very well with him. And I was sympathetic to him. I wanted him to succeed. I said, don't you go to Cuba. If you go to Cuba, 
You're going to bring the Americans into your affairs. Up to now, they've been very quiet. He says, and Ian and I, that's Ian McLeod, he and Jock used to meet for a drink and so on. He said, look, Ian and I know that we don't want to get the Yanks into this story. We want to keep them out. Uh, he didn't understand that. He took a plane and he went off to Cuba before he went to meet his friend and hero, Fidel. But not only did he go to meet Fidel, he announced to the international press that not only is Fidel the greatest liberator of Latin America, but he's also the greatest liberator of the 20th century. And he said there are a lot of things they're doing here which constitute a revolutionary change that is directly relevant to the Caribbean experience coming from plantation societies and so on. He was over the moon. He had seen tomorrow. The communist utopia that he dreamt about was now being built in Cuba, and he wanted the whole world to know. Now, Campbell told me, he says, I warned him against that. He said, but yet he's not a man who would listen because he's a true believer. He thought Marxism, Leninism gave him a total understanding of the world and that all that needs to be known had been known he had learned already. So the elections were held in 1961, and as predicted, Jagan won. It was an Indian victory. Chedi Jagan and Janet celebrating this, this victory, which they should have taken very quietly. A kind of triumphalism which emerged as Indian triumphalism against Africans. That's passing through an African village. Look at those faces there. Nothing to celebrate. That is not their victory. But he couldn't, he couldn't understand these things, the subtleties of it. He thought Marxism-Leninism would resolve ethnic contradictions, which are a false question anyways. As he put it once, we should not speak. We have to pose the questions in terms of class. To pose questions in terms of race and ethnicity is to miss the point. So after he won the elections, he decided that he would go to America because he wanted to get some aid and this was a fatal meeting, I call it, because I spoke to his press secretary who accompanied him. I didn't want him to go to meet the president because I was afraid that he would open his mouth and that would be the end of him. There was a man named John Hennings who was the chief attaché at the British Embassy in Washington. Jagan met Kennedy in the White House on the 25th of October, 1961, a few days before, Hennings met with Jagan and he said, look, we got to talk about a few things here. Don't try to convert JFK to Marxism. He's not going to accept that. Don't use the word socialism. Don't speak of anti-imperialism and so on. Don't speak about the example of the Soviet Union. Don't do these things at all. And don't mention Castro's name at all, because this was taking place just six or seven months after the great fiasco where the CIA 
and the, the Kennedy administration had supported the invasion of Cuba, the Bay of Pigs invasion in April of 61, and the thing was a total fiasco. And that was going against Kennedy as a disaster that the communist virus was there to stay in the hemisphere just 90 miles away. So anyway, Teddy went there, and I want, just want to read a little bit here about what he said, about the meeting. I should point out that before he went to see Kennedy, he appeared on Meet the Press. I don't know how many of you remember Meet the Press. This was a big American TV interview um, thing headed by a man named Lawrence Spivak, a rabid anti-communist. So any political leader who went to America before they went to see the president would appear there. And that is where the president would check you out. He made a fool of himself because he started talking about the Soviet Union. He's saying, he said to Spivak, he said, I haven't been to the Soviet Union, but I'm interested to find out how they're doing things. Because I understand day by day the standard of living is improving. Conditions are improving. It's becoming a, a, a developed society. And we have a lot of lessons to learn. You don't do that sort of thing if you're a statesman. And anyway, I just want to read here something that had not come up before. I said, however, on the 25th of October, shortly after his third electoral victory, Jagan visited the White House and ignoring British consular counsel, like John Henning, to tread cautiously to eschew expressions like scientific socialism, indeed the word socialist completely, so don't use it, he provoked an ideological exchange with Kennedy that located him, in the eyes of the president, unambiguously in the communist camp. In his 90-minute meeting with Kennedy, unusually prolonged for a leader from an obscure little colony, Jagan left the president with no doubt that he was enamored of the Soviet system. I'm quoting Jagan here now. I referred to American opposition to non-alignment as evidenced by their overthrow of the government, uh, of, of overthrowing um, the government of President Yanyo Quadros of Brazil in 1961. I accused the U.S. government, that's with him and Kennedy talking, I accused the U.S. government of overthrowing Quadros because he was pursuing a path of non-alignment, that's how he talks too, in attempting to solve his economic problems. I was told that the U.S. had nothing to do with the overthrow of the Quadros government. It got worse, as Chedi recalls. I'm quoting Chedi now. Kennedy and his aides attacked me on the grounds of our trade with Cuba, an association with socialist countries. I was told there are dangers in this kind of arrangement. I took the counter-offensive and attacked them for preventing countries like British Guyana from making an economic breakthrough. The philosophy of the West, I argued, could not help underdeveloped countries. Well, whatever reservations Kennedy had, those all evaporated one other quote, because when Chedi appeared on Meet the Press with the president watching, according to Arthur Schlesinger, his, one of his chief political assistants, Chedi said in response to Spivak, 
would egg him on. And Chedi was totally naive. The more you egg him on, the more he opens up. He had no secrets. He said, this is him on Meter Press. I believe that the economic theories of scientific socialism, precisely what the British had warned him, don't use that word, please. I believe that the theories of scientific socialism hold out the promise of a dynamic social discipline which can transform underdeveloped countries into a developed one in a far faster time than any other system. We may differ from you in the way we organize our economic life. You have as your dominant philosophy private enterprise, but let us not forget that your development took place in a different historical epoch and so on. Well, as Campbell said, they're going to squeeze your balls. And this is precisely what he had done there. And after that, um, emerged here, he was a Portuguese leader, Peter Degas, who was a rabid anti-communist. And the whole, the whole ideology, the responses to, to Chedi in Guyana took a new stance. Burnham would step back a little bit. He knew that this man had just tripped on his own banana peel and he was heading down the slope. But he knew that Degar had, Burnham knew that, a very astute politician, a very bright man, Forbes Burnham, he knew that Degar had a very important role to play because Degar was a Portuguese businessman. He was also a Catholic. And the Catholic Church, especially after the Second World War and the expansion of the Soviet Empire into Catholic Eastern Europe, Poland and Hungary and, and so on, exacerbated by the rise of Castro in another Catholic country in Latin America, the Catholic Church was becoming increasingly anti-communist. And Degar is a Portuguese businessman representing the small Portuguese and light-colored entrepreneurial business people were totally opposed to Jagan's communism. So what would begin there was a, um, a, a virulent anti-communist culture, which in the context of Kennedy's assessment of Jagan would now become a very powerful force. And the Kennedy administration, in league with the Central Intelligence Agency, I won't go into all the details here, as well as the AFL-CIO, that's the Umbrella Trade Union Organization, and its educational branch, the American Institute for Free Labor Development, these would now work in league with Burnham and Degar, who had created his own party, the United Force, to make sure that the British, who under McLeod at the Colonial Office, had promised Jagan independence, it was virtually there to the take, they would ensure that that would not happen because Kennedy had now defined the situation thus that the Soviet Union would now leapfrog from Cuba onto the South American mainland with that virulent poison of communism which would now be injected into Venezuela and Brazil and this would become unstoppable. And that in the 1964 elections, with a very right-wing man coming up for the Republican Party, a man named Barry Goldwater, a rabid anti-communist, very much to the extreme right, that he would lose the elections. 
So he began to put pressure on Macmillan. By then, McLeod had left the colonial office. You had a brief interregnum there with a man named Reginald Maudling, but then you had a Churchillian right-winger who took over the colonial office, a man named Duncan Sands, the son-in-law of Winston Churchill, who was totally opposed to any suggestion of communism. And it was him now that Macmillan, through, sorry, Kennedy, through his Secretary of State, a man named Dean Rusk, started to work to ensure that under no circumstances must British Guyana get independence as promised by McLeod. And that if this place got independence, it would become a communist state. And that it would become impossible for him to fight Barry Goldwater if you now had two communist states in the hemisphere, both strategically placed, but this one, this little obscure colony, even more virulent, even more dangerous, because it was seen as a beachhead leading onto the South American, into the South American continent. And that was the context in which the CIA and the trade unions in America under the AFL-CIO and, and their branch, uh, the American Institute of Free Labor Development, started to put money into Guyana to ensure that the place became ungovernable so that under no circumstances would the British be inclined to give independence to Chedi Jagan. Because the Americans, shortly after the riots started, which were supported, by, and this has now been documented by the CIA and so on, the Americans had identified Burnham and Degar as the people who would be the alternatives to Chedi Jagan. And the way to do that would be to introduce the system proportional representation because under PR, Chedi Jagan could not win at all. Under first past the post, yes, he could win because with 43, 44, 45 percent, you could win very easily. But with PR, you had to get 51 percent to win. And therefore, the Americans, Kennedy himself and Dean Rusk, started to put pressure on Macmillan, this is all now documented, to make sure that the system was changed. But how are you going to change the system? Because they had suspended the Constitution once in 1953. Jagan had gone back to the polls and won in 57. Jagan had gone back to the polls and won in 1961. Now this was only <clears throat> two or three years after. And you have to suspend the Constitution, impose direct rule again, and then impose the system called proportional representation, which hardly existed anywhere in the Commonwealth. So they were very worried about this. And people like Duncan Sands and Macmillan talked about it. This little obscure colony, as Kennedy said, the, the documents now show clearly from the Kennedy Library, he says, if Mr. Jagan knows how many man-hours are being consumed in this White House over his little bloody colony, he'll feel, think very highly of himself. Because they were obsessed now. And he was worried, JFK, that in 64, anti-communism, and of course by then you had the Bay of Pigs, 1962 you had the missiles crisis, 
where the Russians had installed these missiles in Cuba and became very close to nuclear war. The whole thing, for the first time, foreign policy could well dominate the American presidential elections. And the question of the Cold War was uppermost. And as far as they were concerned, this little colony by a little insignificant man assumed proportions far beyond the scale of everything. It became kind of bizarre. The way the whole thing was debated and discussed, you go to the New York Times and the London Times, this little colony, you know, people know about Jamaica and so in the West Indies, but they weren't talking about those places. Those places were safe. Power was simply being handed over. This here represented, as far as they were concerned, the British were not too worried about it, but the Americans, Kennedy in particular, was obsessed with the idea that the Russian Empire was now coming into their backyard. And that was the context in which he himself intervened and said, in some of his correspondence, my friend, as you'd write to Harold Macmillan, my friend, you've got to help me with this one. And Jagan now, to counter that, was trying to reach a rapprochement with Burnham. So just before the Constitutional Conference, where this question of elections will be discussed in 1963, just before the Constitutional Conference, Sands and his people met in his department, and what they agreed to was, look, under no circumstances must Burnham and Jagan reach a rapprochement. We must make sure that they do not agree to any compromise before the conference or during the conference. And during the conference, we must make sure that we have a special advisor to advise Burnham to make sure that he does not arrive at a compromise with Jagan. Because what we're going to do is that we're going to end up in a situation of a deadlock and we will impose direct rule, suspend the constitution, impose proportional representation and hold elections and then have an independence conference to give Burnham and a coalition with Digar independence. It was as blatant and as crude as that. Anyway, it didn't turn out to be that way. It worked out that way. But the Byzantine ways of Sands and the people around him and the stupidity of Jagan meant that the British had some kind of saving grace here because what happened is that when the conference was convened, and the man who was Jagan's attorney general, Dr. Fenton Ramsohoy, told me that in retrospect, he believed that all these uh, colonial conferences, independence conferences, were bugged. That all the rooms at Lancaster House were bugged. MI5 had bugged all these rooms. And he says that what they decided was that on all the main issues, they would concede to Burnham and Degar. The contentious issues were change the electoral system from first past the post to PR. They were calling for reduction of the voting age from 21 to 18. They said, we'll forego that. And we'll even agree to elections before independence. So they were agreeing on everything, the PPP, in the private room where they met at Lancaster House. They discussed this. They said, but one thing we'll hold out for is setting a date for independence. We concede on all these things, 
but we'll set a date for independence. And apparently, Sands knew that they were prepared to give on all of these points. But then he couldn't go back to Kennedy and say, well, look, he's conceded, we're changing the electoral system, but we've given them a date for independence. Kennedy would not have accepted that. Kennedy might well have invaded the place. But having made aware of what the Jagan and his people agreed to, he phoned Jagan and said, I want you to come on your own tomorrow to Lancaster House. Don't bring your people. None of his legal advisors and so on, Professor Griffiths, who Dr. Ramsahoy, who had taught Dr. Ramsahoy at King's College, um, London, all these people, none, nobody was there, just Jagan and the secretary, a woman named Late Lee Akbar, and she told me, she said, I was his baggage lady. And the moment I walked into Lancaster House, I realized something crooked was going on here. Burnham was there with all his legal advisors. Peter Degar was there with all his legal advisors. He said, Cherry's sitting on his own with me at the back of him. And I told him, I said, Dr. Jagan, let me go and get your people. It's just down the road here from Cox to Coxper Street to Lancaster House, not far. Let me go and get them. He said, no, 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 it's all right. And he said, this document was passed around. And I just want to read this document and then I'll, I'll finish. He said, we, <clears throat> the document was written by Sands and he passed it around. The first person to sign it was Teddy Jagan. I don't believe he even read it. At your request... Secretary of State for the Colonies, at your request, we have made further efforts to resolve the differences between us on the constitutional issues, issues which are required to be settled before British Guyana secure independence. In particular, the electoral system, the voting age, and the question whether fresh elections should be held before independence. Remember, they were prepared to concede all of these things apart from having a date, some future time, for independence. But they were prepared to concede that we must go to elections. We must go to elections even on the PR, which you could probably lose, but we were prepared to take the chance. We regret to have to report to you, this was written by Sands, that we have not succeeded in reaching agreement. And we have reluctantly come to the conclusion that there is no prospect of an agreed solution. In bold now, I put this in bold, Another adjournment of the conference for further discussions, another adjournment between ourselves would therefore serve no useful purpose and would result in further delaying British Guyana's independence and in continued uncertainty in the country. So if you read this thing quickly and bereft of technical or legal advice, you could think that he's saying, well, look, whatever happens, you're going to have a date for independence. And if you're a dentist, like Jagan, and you read this thing quickly, you don't have any technical advisors there, he was the first person to sign. Burnham pretended that he was not interested in signing, knowing full well that the cards were now stacked again, um, in favor of him because the Americans had already told him, look, we're fighting your case. The British already had their advisors there advising him. Jagan did not know this. So he signed the document. And they all signed the document. And Sands came down against Jagan on all counts. 
He changed the electoral system to proportional representation. He retained the voting age at 21. And he said, you will have elections before independence. So Jagan had nothing to take back home, nothing whatsoever. And late in 1964, Kennedy was dead already. Um, they would go to the polls, and Burnham and Degas, in a coalition, would unseat Jagan. That made Jagan even more communist. In 1966, he attended the Tricontinental Conference in Havana, where they agreed the way forward is armed struggle. He didn't have any guns anyways. He would shoot himself in the foot. And in 1969, he would go to the communist world meeting of communist parties in the Soviet Union and embrace his comrades in the Soviet Union, saying that, I said this was the gift in the bag, because Kennedy had died, and Burnham had turned up there now, cigar in hand, to celebrate with um, Johnson. Yes, Pachetti, a kind of homecoming. He's shaking the hands there of a man named Mikhail Suslov, who was the chief theoretician of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union. And between them is Nikolai Podgorny, who was the president of the Soviet Union. So he's meeting the communist brothers there now. That would ensure that whatever American president, Burnham himself, would embrace some kind of Marxism. He himself would get the highest award from Cuba, the Jose Marti Award. He himself would begin to trade with the Soviet Union and ban trade with some capitalist countries and so on, as he embraced a form of Marxism too. But they kept him out of power, the Americans, for 28 years, because as far as they were concerned, he was the worst of two evils, that he was definitely in the Russian camp, and therefore boredom could play ball around the Americans and everybody else. But this is a sad story of this little place, which um, at one point virtually all the political parties would embrace some form of Marxism. Bizarre, bizarre. Uh, meanwhile, whatever your ethnicity, you would migrate. So that explains why the population is now lower, still under a million, lower than it was in 1974, with no prospect of it ever reaching a million, because the ambition of every person in Guyana, if they can, is to migrate. And uh, meanwhile, the ethnic factor has never been overcome. Marxism has come and gone, but ethnic insecurities of the people remain as strong as ever. The Cold War is over, but those ethnic securities remain very profound. I want to thank you. Thank you very much for coming. Thank you. This talk was recorded on the 21st of May 2013 at the National Archives, Kew. This podcast is copyrighted at the National Archives. All rights reserved.